Welcome to the McCarthy Report, where Rich Lowry discusses with Andy McCarthy the legal and national security issues of the day. Rich is out today, so I, Jack Butler, submissions editor at National Review Online, am in the enviable position of being able to ask Andy McCarthy directly things that I would usually just read his articles to to be informed about and to keep straight because it's very dizzying and confusing. I don't know how I would navigate it all without him. So thank you for joining us today on the McCarthy Report, which I guess uh, is customary for you to do, but thank you regardless. Jack, thank you for being here. I'm so happy you're here because Rich originally told me it was going to be Vivek, oh. and I didn't know whether I didn't know whether I'd be up to the barrage of of Vivek. Well, so we I'm got we got to a see you. we got a different uh, alumnus of Saint Xavier High School. Might as well let that cat out of the bag <laughs> that we we went to the same high school. Many years apart, we never overlapped, but it's just a fun little fact that I can dish out from time to time. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because I, I should tell everyone that my high school, and this was widely covered in the, in the New York Post last week, um, won the New York State football championship last week, uh, Cardinal Hayes High School in the Bronx. And it was an amazing story because apparently they had to play every game on the road because the city refused to repair McCombs Dam Park which is outside Yankee Stadium and outside uh, Cardinal Hayes High School. Uh, but the field is in such bad condition that the, the team couldn't practice there. So they had to play every game on the road throughout the season and had this miraculous season where they not only won their division, but went on to win the whole state championship. So everybody's pretty pumped up about that. I look forward to the film adaptation of their season. Uh, it sounds ready made for one. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> We've got a full agenda today. We've got uh, the fight over FISA. We've got Christopher Ray, FBI director, testifying again. We've got the latest Trump and Biden legal political woes. So let's just get right to it. Uh, let's start, as my outline suggested, with the fight over FISA. And we just clarified before the recording began how how this is uh, colloquially pronounced this term, but. I'm just going to, as I suggested at the very beginning, I my knowledge of these things is heavily dependent on you. So let me. Why don't you just explain for the audience what that term means and why it is currently up for debate? So FISA comes from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, but the provision that's being hotly debated in Congress was one that was added to FISA in in 2008 as a result of basically a legislative compromise over the post 9-11 Bush, very controversial warrantless surveillance program, which the provision we're talking about now, which is called section 702 of FISA, uh, was that, that provision was designed to codify in law Bush's warrantless program in order to satisfy the people who were complaining that they thought it was uh, unlawful. Uh, some were complaining that they thought it was unconstitutional. I don't think personally that it was either, but it was a big controversy at the time and it was a big deal to get it codified into law. Now, I, I should say, Jack, that I'm a longtime critic of FISA, which goes back to my days as a prosecutor. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea uh, it was an overreaction, very common in, in Washington, to a controversy of the time, which were 
which was the spy scandals of the 1960s and 70s, including um, some abuse of the FBI that was attendant to the Watergate scandal. Um, and when you had an overwhelming Democratic Congress uh, and a Democratic president in 1978 and Jimmy Carter, they concocted this FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, to make the court, to bring the court into intelligence surveillance. The idea being that the agent shouldn't be able to monitor people inside the United States without getting court permission. It's always been true that if you are suspected of a crime, the court is involved. If you want to get, if a prosecutor wants to get a search warrant or a wiretap, they have to go to a judge to show probable cause that a crime is being committed in order to get that permission. But foreign intelligence surveillance has always been a unilateral duty of the executive branch. And the reason they do it without court supervision is, number one, it's not a judicial function. Um, but number two, um, it, it mainly targets foreign actors outside the United States, although they have agents who work inside the United States. And the, the purpose of foreign intelligence surveillance is not to build criminal cases particularly against Americans. It's to inform the president so that he can carry out his national security and foreign relations functions. So up until 1978, it was kind of a unilateral executive branch show that the courts had no involvement in. And because of the spy scandals in the 60s and 70s, what they decided to do was force the government, force the executive branch to go to a specialized court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, if they wanted to monitor inside the United States people who, who were suspected, not of crimes, but of being agents, clandestine agents of foreign powers. So that was what the idea was originally. But they made a very clear point, even in constructing FISA, which I think was a bad idea. But the one good thing they did when they did it was they said, this only involves monitoring inside the United States. We don't want the courts to have any involvement at all in the executive branch's collection of foreign intelligence against aliens outside the United States. There's no basis for a court to be involved in that because the Fourth Amendment does not apply outside the United States. Uh, and the people that we're dealing with don't have an expectation of privacy outside American law that they won't be being monitored by American spy agencies. So we went along with that um, construct for about, you know, from 1978 to 2008, so 30 years. Um, and it was periodically problematic, but everybody sort of uh, settled into the new way of doing things. And the big thing that happened in the interim is we had this revolution in telecom where we went from analog technology to digital technology. This was a great boon for the intelligence agencies because now they had a capacity that they had never had before to scoop up tons and tons of communications 
and they had more insight than ever before into foreigners outside the United States who might have designs on attacking the United States. But the Fourth Amendment complication was now for the first time, because communications were traveling in digital packets that go through hubs in the United States, even if you and I, Jack, like say you were in Pakistan and I was in Afghanistan. If As I'm had, known to be. Every now and then, you know, we, we yeah. get around, right? But um, if we had a communication by email or some other way of communicating, the digital packets of our conversation would go through American hubs or very likely would go through American hubs, even though neither one of us is physically in the United States. So the fact that the communications were now coming through our systems triggered the claim that the courts actually did have jurisdiction over them for the first time. So telecom kind of changed the assumptions of the of FISA from 1978. And to make a, a long story short, after the 9-11 attacks, when 3,000 Americans were killed, Bush brought his national security team in and said, are we doing everything we can to track down these networks and deal with whoever might be um, a uh, threat to the United States? And one of the things that came out of that challenge was the idea that you didn't need to have FISA involved if you were going to just do surveillance targeting aliens outside the United States who might be a threat. The pushback against this was those aliens outside the United States might be communicating with people inside the United States. So if you were monitoring them without a warrant, you were capturing the communications of Americans. And that was what the big, comp uh, the big uh, confrontation or controversy was. And the way this was resolved was by enacting Section 702, which basically, to my mind, is just branding a judicial imprimatur on what the executive branch would be doing anyway. So what happens is basically once a year, the intelligence agencies bring to the FISA court these massive warrants, which are not really that particularized, but give out programmatic uh, applications to conduct the kind of surveillance that they would conduct overseas anyway. And the court basically signs off on it. And that's our authority to conduct foreign surveillance. Um, because of the Bush controversy and the, the blowback from, from Democrats about it. And this, I think, got caught up in the politics of the second Bush term where he, he became very unpopular, right, as the, as the term continued. Um, mm -hmm. When they enacted se Section 702, they refused to do it in a way that it became permanent law or as permanent as, as statutory law ever is, right? All statutes can be repealed, but the idea is the statute continues in law until it gets repealed. Section 702, they've always put a sunset provision on it. So every five or six years, we end up having this big debate over whether it ought to be reauthorized or not. And it ends up being not just a debate about 702, but a debate about surveillance in general and how the FBI performs, et cetera. And that's the, right. that's the controversy we're in at the moment. Yeah, so I'll say just a little bit about that controversy. Namely this, the 
I have a bit of a paradoxical view about our national security state, which I ha- I am uncomfortable with certain aspects of it. But at the same time, I want to make sure that ours is better than everyone else's. <laughs> so that's my that's my view. Uh, now, given that the the level of discomfort that certain people have about the way this this section seven hundred two stuff works, where do you do you find these? Uh, criticisms legitimate, unfounded, something somewhere in between. The the broad criticism about FISA is is warranted. The specific criticism about seven hundred two, while warranted, is overstated. Um, and I think all of it is is bound up in a generalized unhappiness with the way the FBI has performed. The last 10 years, which is, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, you just pointed out about the importance of, of our national security being as good as it can be. Right. Yeah. The big, the big problem with national security. And I didn't, I, I really got a sense of this when I moved from being like a mafia prosecutor in the eighties to doing uh, national security cases in the nineties. What you don't realize until you're, you have that kind of experience is the national security realm, the foreign counterintelligence realm, where you really need to have secrecy and it's life and death as far as your sources and methods are concerned, it's the one area of the law, or law enforcement at least, where the FBI and the rest of the government has to be able to look people in the eye and say, you can trust us to wield these powers. Because yeah. in the criminal system... Like if I go to a judge for a warrant in an ordinary criminal case, I yes, I get to meet with the judge one-on-one without the defense lawyer there, but everybody knows that there's eventually going to be an indictment and a prosecution where the defense is going to get discovery of everything I gave the judge and everything I told the judge. And if I committed some misconduct, I'm going to be found out. So- the idea that you're going to have to make disclosure has a has a very good effect on the way people behave in the criminal justice system. Whereas in the foreign counterintelligence system, there's never going to be a defense lawyer. And the only due process an American or anyone else gets is in the conversation between the FBI and the Justice Department on the one hand and the FISA court. Uh, if they lie to the court and they get away with it, no one's ever going to know. Because all this stuff goes in a black box and it's all, um, uh, it's all classified. So when critics, and there's a, a, you'd have to be a critic of this, when you see what the Bureau did in connection with Carter Page in the Russiagate investigation, where they brought bogus information to the FISA court, never tried to corroborate it, uh, and contended that Trump was a clandestine agent of the Kremlin, and we then, we then finally, when that got investigated, we, we see that what they were telling the court was complete nonsense. And then when you start looking under some of the rocks, you see they're not, they're not complying with their own internal procedures about verifying information before they bring it to the FISA court. Um, and you have a major scandal. And it's all well and good to say, well, look, That's the original part of FISA where we're talking about investigations that may involve Americans inside the United States. That's got nothing to do with our collection of foreign intelligence outside the United States. That might be true, 
But what happens then is you start to look at how they do the collection, the, the stuff that's outside the United States. So what ends right. up happening is they scoop up this information. It ends up in a government database. And under the law, the FBI has a right to query the database, not only to get foreign intelligence information, but to get information that might be relevant to a criminal investigation. So what the critics say is you can't trust what the FBI tells the FISA court, and you can't trust them when they say, we only want to go to the database to get uh, foreign intelligence information when they might be pretextually doing that so that they can build a criminal case under circumstances where they don't have enough evidence to do it. So it's a trust thing. And the FBI doesn't have a great trust record right now. And I think what we're seeing is the Bureau made a lot of errors in connection with its 702 authority, tapped the database a number of times when it didn't have a good foreign intelligence reason to do it, which gives its critics a lot of basis to say, that they do everything pretextually and you can't trust them. In the meantime, Chris Ray, who is the current uh, FBI director, has actually done a very good job of cleaning up the mess from the prior regime. And even the FISA court in the last year has said that the Bureau's performance with respect to uh, compliance with the court rules about when they're allowed to query the database has become much better. So for example, I think just three or four years ago, they had an 18% error rate as far as compliance with the, with the rules. Yeah. It's now close to zero. Uh, I think that the, the FISA court said that it was about 1.7% uh, error rate. Uh, and in the latest justice department um, review, the internal one, They've done better than that. So Ray knows he has a problem, um, and, and they're trying to fix the problem. The FI, for what it's worth, the FISA court has been an unsparing critic of the FBI over the last number of years, but even the FISA court has said that the, imp the performance has improved markedly in the last year. Uh, and what Ray is arguing is if you want to make improvements, why don't you take these internal reforms that I've done and enact them into law? And that way, we'll have more transparency. You can't have much transparency in terms of, of the public, but at least you can have Congress do a better, more aggressive job of oversight of, of this authority. But what the Bureau is trying to fight is... The critics of the Bureau want the FBI to have to get a warrant every time they want to query the database for information about an American. And what the Bureau comes back and says is, most of the time when we tap the database, it's exigent circumstances, and we're not trying to build a criminal case against an American. What happens, for example, is they get a cyber threat. They find out that China, some agent of China, is trying to hack into some American system. They need to get the American information in order to find out who the target is of the cyber attack. And if you have to get a warrant every time something like that happens, it's just going to slow up the works and a lot of people are going to end up being damaged by it. And there should be no controversy over it because – 
as long as you're not trying to build a case against an American citizen, Americans are incidentally monitored all the time in criminal investigations. You know, if the if you get a wiretap on a mafia family, every call that goes in and out of the house, including, you know, the wife, the kids, the pizza guy, the you know, all kinds of people who have nothing to do with the investigation end up getting monitored because you have a probable cause warrant on somebody in the home. Or if the FBI is following someone who they think is um, in a, let's say, in a drug transaction, as you follow someone on the street, you're obviously going to be monitoring the activities of the other people on the street who are, you know, in the neighborhood, in the, in the area where you're watching and who might or might not be meeting with this person and therefore might or might not be a subject of interest to you. You don't have to get a warrant every time your target is having contact with somebody else, even in the criminal context where where we go to the courts all the time. So what the Bureau is saying is when we are trying to get information for foreign intelligence purposes, which is usually to protect Americans, it would be catastrophic to our operations to have to get a warrant. On the other hand, where the statute says the FBI is allowed to tap the database in order for a criminal investigation, not for foreign intelligence, the law requires the Bureau, before they can do that, to go to the FISA court, show probable cause of a crime, and then get an order from a judge allowing them to tap the database on the basis of finding uh, that they've got probable cause of a crime. So you have the same protection already in the statute that you would have on the criminal justice side, you know, outside of, uh, of foreign intelligence. So what the Bureau is saying is, look, in situations where we would have to get a warrant in normal criminal investigations, we have to get a warrant in FISA because it, it's written into Section 702. We have to do that. But if you impose a, wa- a warrant requirement when we're not trying to build a criminal case and when we're just trying to protect the country, what's going to end up happening is it slows up the works too much and we're going to miss stuff. And what Ray pointed out uh, in his testimony with Congress this week is that this would be like rebuilding the wall uh, that existed under Justice Department regulations in the 1990s that prevented the intelligence guys from cooperating with the criminal justice investigators and therefore caused us to miss the planning stages of the 9-11 attacks. There was a very good chance the FBI could have thwarted the 9-11 attacks because about three weeks before 9-11, it turned out that two of the guys who ended up piloting Flight 77 into the Pentagon were found to be inside the United States and were and were discovered and were on like the terrorism watch list on the intelligence side of the FBI's house. And the intelligence guys asked the criminal investigation side of the Bureau for help locating these two guys, uh, Khaled Al-Midhar and I can't remember what the other guy, uh, Nawaf Al-Hasmi. Um, and the FBI said, no, under our wall regulations, we can't let the criminal justice side cooperate with the intelligence side to meld information and try to figure out where the threat's coming from. 
And three weeks later, these guys were on flight 77. So what Ray is saying is in these intelligence circumstances where things are moving quickly, you have to be able, you have to let us be able to tap the information we have to protect the country. And if you put a warrant requirement in, then we're just going to miss stuff. Yeah, that uh, we're not on the Hugh Hewitt show, but I'm going to reference The Looming Tower anyway. Reading that book is just a great way to find yourself immensely frustrated by the very phenomenon you just described. Yep. All of the information being out there and in the hands of parts of our national security state and it just not being able to cross the right channels to for someone to successfully act on it. Yeah. So that's something you'd want to avoid, I think. The, mo the most frustrating six or eight weeks I ever spent because after 9-11, I helped run the command post, the Justice Department command post near Ground Zero. And the frustration at the time was having seen what a catastrophe the wall was, right after 9-11 happened, the Justice Department pulled it down. So at the very same time that we're, we're in an investigation and we're thinking we could be hit again, because at the time, everyone thought the 9-11 attacks were like the first wave. and that there Yeah, was I remember that more. even in my young age. So, so at the same time, we're trying to investigate a forward-looking investigation, but we have to go back six years since the wall went up because for those six years, the law enforcement side and the intelligence side were not allowed to compare notes and, you know, figure out what they call as a, a, the, the term they use at the time was the threat mosaic, you know, the whole picture. Um, it was very hard to, it's very hard to do something like in real time and at the same time, try to play catch up for six years of all the stuff that you haven't been able to, you know, all the connections you haven't been able to make the dots you haven't been able to connect. Yeah, well, something you, again, something you want to avoid if you can. So, all right, let's uh, since we're we're talking about FBI stuff anyway, and you mentioned uh, the FBI Director Christopher Ray and his recent congressional testimony. I want to move on to the uh, that testimony and starting out with this interesting disquisition on the Richmond FBI Catholic memo. Now, I find that there I have another sort of idiosyncratic perspective on this, which is on the one hand. It is distressing to me that any resources by the federal government in any way are being uh, geared toward investigating Catholics of any kind on suspicion that there's some sort of threat. On the other hand, I don't know, as a Catholic, I find that a little cool. Like, <laughs> the government thinks I'm a threat? Oh, wow. How exciting. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so that's, that's, I obviously, that latter weird view of mine doesn't make me happy about this stuff but anyway so is this as uh is this as egregious and a violation of of fbi powers as some some news outlets cover, covering it make it out to be or is this more of a one-off thing where it's like oh this is very bad but it's it, it it's one of these things that just happened at one uh one branch and just sort of spun out of control before anyone knew what it was what it was turning into so there's bad in it uh for sure you got you know, I think you have some people uh, in the Virginia, the Richmond, Virginia office who, you know, they could be, for all I know, they could be, it, it looks like they're lefties because of some of the source materials that they relied on in this memo. Yeah, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center and some of the left wing 
websites. So, you know, you may have people who are hardwired to be anti-Catholic or anti-religious. Um, but at the same time, apparently all of this is an overlay on top of what was actually a legitimate investigation involving somebody who was allegedly a violent criminal who was motivated in part by his Christian ideology or his construction of Catholicism. Now, people hear that and they, you know, they blanch. I have to say I come at this from a from a different perspective. Not only am I probably hardwired because I've done investigations and I know that things get complicated and it's a very human process. So I'm, I, I'm kind of, you know, my, my uh, baggage here is I'm usually inclined, inclined to cut the investigators a break because in the long years that I spent doing this kind of stuff, I dealt with very, very few people who actually conducted investigations out of animus. I mean, like two or three times you could you could see something like really wrong where it turned out that somebody had an axe to grind that didn't belong in an investigation. But on the whole, people are trying to do the right thing in, in situations where, which are complicated. But the other reason, Jack, that I have a I've less of a I'm I don't blanch at this as much as many people do when they first see it is I spent many years investigating jihadists and struggling with how do you, especially in the immigration context, but but more broadly in counterterrorism, how do you separate out people who have a kind of a fundamentalist classical view of Sharia and Islamic doctrine versus the jihadist who is going to be animated by and con and conduct mass murder plots and attacks on the basis of it. So I I kind of come to this from a background that says it's possible for any ideology that has um, forcible elements to its structure uh, to its scriptures to be taken, you know, in a literalist fundamentalist way. Uh, and to animate violence because it happens. You know, it's not like, it's not speculation. We had years of it. Um, now, I don't think that's as, as clear um, as far as some kind of uh, what the Bureau is trying to identify as like a fundamentalist form of Catholicism versus, you know, a fundamentalist uh, 10th century Sunni construction of Sharia. Like, I don't see, I, I don't see, um, those two things on a, on an, on the same plane. Um, and I have to, you know, my baggage is I'm Catholic too, right? So maybe there's something going on that I'm not seeing, or I have a, you know, I have a hardwire, uh, bias, uh, at work as well. But when I hear that agents, um, were concerned that people that, that someone might commit acts of violence catalyzed by religious ideology, I'm not offended by that because I did it, you know, for a long time. <laughs> um, and, and I know it happens at the same time. You have to be very careful when you're doing this stuff. Like I was always very careful when we were laying out why the jihadists in our case did the things they did 
we would cite chapter and verse. And fortunately for us, we would be able to say, this isn't us saying it. It's not even just us reading something out of the Quran. This is like the blind sheikh who is a doctor of Islamic jurisprudence, graduated from Al-Azhar University, interpreting scripture and telling young Muslim men that it made them duty bound to conduct terrorist attacks. So we were able to show a straight line nexus between scripture, an authoritative person construing scripture, and then these young guys who were catalyzed to conduct attacks. It seems to me that what these guys in, in Richmond were doing were, was very different. They were looking at um, their understanding of Catholic, um, I don't know if fundamentalist is the right way of putting it, but their understanding of a particular interpretation of Catholicism, which they construed to be anti-Semitic and noxious on uh, a variety of different levels. And then they did their own kind of scholarship into what caused it and what in, and in what ways it might animate um, young Christian men or young Christians in general. I don't think they, they confined it to men, although they did say it was mostly a white male uh, phenomenon. And it just seems to me to be, you know, like um, crackpot sociology, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't connected. There is a case at the bottom of all this where they did have a bad guy who was uh, animated by this by an ideology, but to try to to try to extrapolate from that that you had like a current of ideology that might infect other people and might cause you know domestic terrorism based on white supremacism uh, with a Catholic bent. I don't think there's any evidence for that that I can see in the memo, you know, hard evidence where we say, gee, we have an, a rash of mass murder attacks. Maybe we better get to the bottom of, of this. You know, this was like, there may be this fuzzy ideology out there and who knows, maybe it could someday cause mass murder attacks. You know, it's like, it's sort of inverted that way, but probably more importantly, when you see the criticism of this thing, which is totally valid as, as I've described it, you know, Jim Jordan's committee in the House and the stuff that he's put out about this keeps saying the FBI said, the FBI did, the FBI then went out and, and you know, interviewed these people that they shouldn't have interviewed. It's not the FBI. It's a handful of guys in Richmond. And evidently, when Ray found out about this, and, it, you know, look, it, the, the director of the FBI does not get every single memo that gets generated by all, I think will the bureau have 56 or I think it's 56 field offices. You could say anything and I'd believe you. Yeah. Well, no, but <laughs> I, a I, number. I still want to be accurate, you know, cause we're talking yes. about ideology here, Jack. I, I don't, I don't want right. to screw this up. Um, but you know, obviously Ray isn't privy to every single memo that comes out, but when he did find out about this one, and it, it did eventually make its way up the chain, he went crazy, and he got it out. You know, he banned it. He pulled it from the systems. He like they put out a memo saying this is not what the FBI thinks. We never want anybody to rely on this again. Now, 
I want to mention one more thing because I know I'm going too, on too long about this, but I, I think it's a, a point worth making because I think it's the Bureau's problem across the board. Ray is, I think Ray thinks he was brought in to be the anti-Comey. And his style, generally speaking, is like the antithesis of Comey. He's not flashy. He's not looking for, for publicity. He doesn't, you know, seek the limelight. And his approach to things is to be calm and quiet. And I think that's generally a good thing. But here's where it's not a good thing. The FBI has screwed up monumentally a number of times over the last decade, including times when he's been in charge. And mm -hmm. it doesn't feel to anyone like people actually ever get held accountable. You know, I think if you asked Ray, he would say, like, in connection with Russiagate, all those guys are gone now. They've been pushed out of the bureau. Some of them were fired. Some of them were encouraged to go spend more time with their families on a on an uh, earlier than anticipated basis. But they pushed people out quietly. And then they discipline people quietly. And then they don't talk about it. And maybe that's the right way to run most organizations. But I think when you have monumental failures, as they have at the Bureau, the people want catharsis. They want somebody hung out to dry in a very public way. And especially when you're talking about people on the political right, who I think have a lot of reason to believe that the right gets treated much more harshly than uh, progressives do uh, by the justice system, particularly when it's being run by progressive governments. People look at this and say, you know, the bureau's violating people's rights left and right, and nobody ever gets held accountable for it. And in this instance in Richmond, I think what got the, the senators uh, whipped up during the hearing the other day is Ray won't identify who was involved. And other than saying that they've been admonished, he won't really say, he didn't fire anyone apparently. You know, it's one, one of these things like he put a letter in their file. Now, objectively, do I think this is a firing offense? You know, a bunch. You know, some bird brains get together and write a dumb memo. Um, I think they need to talk into would I fire somebody over it under circumstances where it doesn't look like anything terrible happened? No, I don't think so. But you know, everything has a context, and when Ray doesn't like publicly punish these guys, it gets added to. Um, you know, a whole array of things that have happened where it looks like the Bureau never holds anyone to account internally. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that is not a good look, as you've made very clear, and as events over the past decade have made very clear. So, and re related to this, I want to I move on to the two of the, the, the or rather, the two primary figures of the 2020 election, and now it, it appears to be the 2024 election. But before I do, I want to ask you briefly if you, had anything you wanted to say about the aspects of the 2020 election that came up in the Ray hearing concerning the FBI conduct surrounding uh, Hunter Biden related information? Seems like some 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 Republicans were were very uh, were not happy with this and were were taking it out on Ray somewhat. Yeah, well, look, I I think um, to me the most disturbing thing with the FBI under Ray's 
uh, under Ray's tenure, which I think has basically been curative. And I think he's done a much better job uh, than people are willing to give him credit for. I think it's very, you know, the, the dirty little secret about him is that he's a conservative Republican. It's not that much of a secret, you know, but he's, <laughs> I mean, he came, he was a, a high justice department official in the Bush 43 administration. Uh, and among his, uh, you know, friends, I'm not, a, I'm not, uh, in his circle of friends at all. I, I know him a little bit, but, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a friend of his. Uh, but among people who are friendly with him, he's a he's a conservative Republican, you know, and mm -hmm. he's trying to he's uh, existing in the Biden administration where he's got to be very careful about picking his shots and where, you know, I think, for example, he was very good when when Garland put that memo out saying that he basically wanted to sick the FBI on parents who were protesting uh, the yeah, indoctrination. Terrible memo. Yeah, but Ray came right out and said, "We're not doing that stuff. You know, we don't. We're the <laughs> yes. FBI. That's we have a First Amendment in this country. We're not. We don't harass parents. So, I I think he's got to be careful because everybody knows that if Biden thought he could get an easy confirmation, Ray would be gone in a heartbeat, and they bring in somebody much worse than than Ray is into that job. The only reason Ray's still there is because I don't think Biden thinks he can get somebody confirmed to replace him. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's there. And I think he's mainly done a good job. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's cleaned up, he's had a big mess to clean up and he's cleaned up a lot of it. But um, this whole idea, which has taken hold of the Bureau, I, which I think is mainly built on a fiction is that, our democracy is at risk because the Russians may tamper with our elections. And I wrote about this in the book that I wrote about um, Russiagate. Russia's been interfering in our elections basically since after the Second World War, if not – I mean, in some ways you could go back to 1917. I think that's, that's a little bit uh, extravagant. But certainly since the Cold War – They've interfered in our elections, and we interfere in their politics. I mean, that's what that's what that's what happens. And the idea that the Russians came close to throwing the 2016 election, even if some of the stuff that the bureau was saying had been true, like the stuff that they were representing to the FISA court, it's it's nonsensical to think that the Russians could steal our elections. It's just it's fantasy land. But the bureau became so invested in 2016 including with what they were doing with the FISA court, that it's become a thing in the Bureau. Like the way that you want to advance in the Bureau is make your career on how do we prevent the Russians from stealing our elections, you know, which to me is like make my career on how do I get all the blue cheese out of the moon? You know, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's it, a real problem. Well, it is a problem. I mean, no one's done it to this point, right? I mean, let's face no, it. No, no, it's, it's a shame. But anyway, so Ray, along these lines, created this um, unit, um, which was basically, I forget exactly what they called it, but it, what they were worried about was foreign interference in our elections. And this was a unit that was monitoring what was going on in social media. And the thing is, like Ray testified the other day, and here's why I think the senators get, get um, frustrated, and rightly so. He says, 
if you talk to the bureau people who were involved in this and you talk to the Twitter people, they would all come back and say to you, the bureau never told us to suppress anything. But that's not the way this works. What happens, first of all, is the bureau goes in and has these meetings with people so that they can feel better about voluntarily cooperating with the FBI. And they come in and they say, gee, this is a nice little social media platform you have here. Be terrible if anyone were to get prosecuted for like promoting uh, Russian disinformation and, and uh, you know, if we could make some crimes out of that. We're not saying that, that that's going to happen to you guys, but, you know, just uh, just want to throw that out there. And by the way, um, you know, there could be some derogatory information about a major party candidate. Um, <laughs> he winked, listeners, <laughs> since, since um, you can't see that. And, you know, I'd be very concerned that that could be Russian disinformation. And at the same time, as the Bureau is having these meetings with social media, they know, because they've been conducting an investigation since 2019, that the Hunter Biden laptop is legitimate. Not that everything on it is legitimate, but, but that it's the provenance of it is it's actually his stuff. It's not Russian disinformation. The Russians have nothing to do with it. So I think they're, they're feeding this impression that if there's derogatory Biden information, it could come from Russia. They're not saying to the to Twitter, suppress everything. And they're not saying we're going to prosecute you, but it's in the air. And then in the meantime, who's the lawyer for Twitter? Jim Baker, who was the deputy or who was the general counsel at the FBI during Russiagate. So the FBI comes in and it gives its pitch. And then Jim Baker goes back to, to the fellas at, at, at you know, the executive suite in Twitter says, you know, gee, I think we better, we, we probably should tamp down on this stuff. Um, so sure, the Twitter people will say the FBI never threatened us. And the FBI will say, we certainly never gave them any instructions to, to suppress anything. But in the meantime, to me, you know, in any other context, especially the left, would see this as an atmosphere of intimidation, um, which had the desired consequence and they got a bunch of stuff suppressed yeah and i think ray should answer well, I, for that yeah it's all a mess and uh, a, ma a multifaceted mess and this is one of the many reasons i'm i'm grateful to be able to well in this in this instance talk to you but also to read you and i'm not able to to talk to you on the podcast and which brings us to trump's many lawsuits i've i've I don't think uh, medieval scholars counted angels on the head of a pin, and uh, now now legal scholars such as yourself count how many lawsuits Trump is dealing with. But we've had developments in two of the biggest ones, one civil and one criminal. So let's go through what is what the latest updates in the first the civil suit that you've that that's been in the news are, and then the criminal. Yeah. So there's there's these three civil lawsuits arising out of the Capitol riot. Where Trump collectively, the two, one suit is brought by two Capitol Police, one suit is brought by ten congressional Democrats, and the third suit is brought by Eric Swalwell. So it's eleven congressional Democrats, but collectively, it's the suits arise out of the same facts and it's the same claims. So they want to sue Trump um, for his actions, which put them 
either which caused them injury, they say, or put them in fear of their lives, um, his actions in the run-up to the Capitol riot. And the issue is the Supreme Court has long held um, that this goes back, I guess, to, to around 1982, a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald, that if a president is acting within the outer ambit of his executive authority, uh, then he is not subject to civil lawsuits. We'll come to the next thing, because the big issue there is going to be, what about criminal prosecution? But let's just stick with the, the civil lawsuits first. So this is a very early stage in, in this civil litigation. They haven't even had discovery yet, and the court is expecting this is all going to get flushed out. But the big question here, Jack, is what are Trump's official duties as president? So what the court says is we're not going to make a final finding on this yet, but here's a rubric for sorting out whether an act is an official presidential act or an unofficial private act. And what they what they highlighted was like campaign activity. So if you cut a campaign ad, that is deemed to be not an official activity of the president. That's a private political action. And what they're saying for now is this lawsuit can go forward because as far as Trump seeking office is concerned, that's not a presidential action or duty. He stands in that aspect in the same shoes as anybody else who is seeking the office. And therefore, we're not going to give him presidential immunity for that. But there are other opinions. There's three opinions in this case. It's a three-judge panel. And besides the main opinion that lays all that out, the other two judges, including Greg Katzis, who's a terrific uh, conservative lawyer, put on the court by Trump. I think he worked with Judge Mukasey at the Justice Department years ago. He's a very smart lawyer. And he points out, Look, you know, it's not always easy to tell whether something is official or unofficial. So let's say the president is having a campaign appearance, which would ostensibly be an unofficial political act. And during the middle of it, he, he announces he's going to fire the secretary of state. Well, that's a presidential act. So mm -hmm. it's not always easy to tell. And I think what the court is simply saying here is for now, we are not going to dismiss this case. We're going to let it proceed to discovery and, and get a little bit more ripe and then come back to us and we'll try to sort it all out. But for now, it will not. It would not give Trump immunity and, and they're going to proceed. The second case is the more consequential one because that's the criminal case. This is Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's an Obama appointee, who is presiding over Jack Smith, the special counsel's election interference case against Trump. Uh, in connection with um, uh, with the Capitol riot. So, Jack, here, the timing is as important as the substance of the decision. While the Supreme Court holds that, and has held for a long time, that a president has immunity for uh, from civil lawsuits arising out of his official actions, the court has never ruled on whether it has whether the president has immunity from criminal prosecution for his official actions. 
And in the case where they gave immunity for civil, uh, from civil lawsuits, it was a 5-4 decision where the court strongly signaled that if this had been criminal rather than civil, the case would have gone the other way. But other than that, we don't have a, a Supreme Court precedent that, that makes a ruling on this. We have some other things that sort of trend in the direction of no immunity. So, for example, in the Nixon tapes case, which involved a criminal subpoena for the tapes, the court said you have to produce the tapes, right? Um, and in the Clinton-Paula Jones suit, um, the court said, and I think it was 1998, that the even though the responsibilities of the presidency are awesome and important to the country, we're not going to give the president immunity in a case where he's being sued for private wrongs. Um, so the trajectory of the cases seems to be that if it, the demands of the justice system, particularly in the criminal realm, um, are something the courts are going to say the presidency has to bow to. And I think, therefore, it was a reasonable interpretation of the court's prior precedents for Judge Chutkin to say that Trump had no immunity. Now, personally, I don't think a president should be sued or prosecuted over his presidential actions. But I'm uncomfortable saying that because I think there's a big difference between, you know, president orders people. Let's have an absurd example, right? President. Mm, I love those. Yeah, right. So president orders subordinates to come in for a beating. And then he reaches <laughs> into his yeah. desk and shoots, uh, grabs a gun and shoots one of them, right? Nobody Yikes. would nobody would say president shouldn't be prosecuted for that, even if on some level the president could could bring that within the ambit of his presidential duties, right? But on the other hand, now let's look at what happened in connection with January sixth. Trump is not charged with incitement. He's not charged with any violent crime. So, for example, he's charged with relying on a cockamamie legal theory by John Eastman that the prosecutor argues Trump had powerful reason to know was bogus. And on the basis of that, Smith is charging him with fraud on the United States, obstructing Congress, and a civil rights violation. These are very extravagant, iffy interpretations of those criminal statutes. And it is certainly within the ambit of Trump's presidential powers. And you have to separate out here whatever his motives might have been versus, you know, what are actually the powers of the presidency. The president can look into whether there's been election fraud. There's nothing that says a president can't uh, try to pressure either state officials or state courts to try to overturn election results. There's law in every state in the United States that allows people to challenge election results. Now, Smith's theory is that Trump was acting corruptly because he knew what he was saying was false, and he knew that the legal theory he was pushing was bogus. But that's a real reach. And I have to say, you know, it, this is always very hard to... to um, address with people because because January 6th is such a hot button issue with so many people as it should be. 
But if you if you could mentally pretend that the Capitol riot never happened, because remember, again, Trump is not charged with the Capitol riot. He's not charged with a violent crime. If you could pretend that the Capitol riot never happened, does anybody really think that Trump would be being if he had just tried to get Congress to buy Eastman's theory and Congress had like voted it down, which is what would have happened? Does anybody think that Trump would have been charged with obstruction or, you know, any of these other crimes? I don't think so. I think he's charged because of the Capitol riot. And they're still they continue to be angry that they don't have evidence that, you know, they can hit him with it. But I think we enter into a very dangerous territory when we're now in an era. We we weren't in one before, but we're now in an era where you have hyper-politicized prosecutions where you have two tiers of justice where people who are, you know, are Democrats are being treated much differently from Republicans by the, by the justice system. And now you have Trump who's running for office and could win. I know I say he can't win, but, but like, you know, objectively, right. He could win. He's saying, I'm your retribution. Put me in. He has one of his guys, Cash Patel, uh, made a public statement the other day saying, when we get in, we're going after everybody. We're going after Democrats. We're going after the media. We're going to prosecute them. We're going to hold their feet to the fire. We're going to do all the things they've been doing. Um, I think we're in a very strange place if, you know, from now on, a president's legal, a, a president's executive actions could subject him to prosecution because the next party gets in and they don't like them for some policy reason, and they figure out some extravagant theory of fraud on the government, like like Smith has, as a vehicle to indict them. You know, the whole reason we don't let the president be subjected to civil liability is we don't want the president worrying when he's got to make tough decisions on behalf of the country about whether he's going to get sued over them. And the, the reason that we distinguish criminal from civil is that it used to be our norm that we didn't, we didn't use prosecution as a partisan weapon. I don't think that norm exists anymore. So anyway, I have a big problem with it, but I, I don't have a problem with Judge Chutkin's decision because I think she's a lower court judge and she, she ruled the same way I would have ruled as a lower court judge. I would have said, I have a big problem with this, but this is what the Supreme Court cases seem to say. Yeah. Yeah, we are in a very strange world. And one of the things that makes this world strange is that it's not like it's just Donald Trump who's caught in this uh, web of mischief. It's it's Joe Biden. <laughs> Joe Biden is not is hardly a an unblemished lamb in in his proceedings as well. And so I, I'm going it, to it's funny that we are now about to talk. We're bringing up the I word impeachment, because for those uh, countless people who are interested in Butler-McCarthy lore. <laughs> About a decade ago, uh, I interviewed Andy McCarthy on the Hugh Hewitt Show on his book, Faithless Execution, Making the Case for Impeaching Obama. So now we're going to talk about Biden impeachment stuff. So we have this idea percolating among House Republicans of opening a formal impeachment inquiry. Now, there have already been conversations. There's already been an investigation, a sort of drip-drip thing ongoing but if, if I understand this correctly, it doesn't have the formal designation thereof yet. So there's a debate over that among House Republicans. And then there's also uh, stuff emerging out of the sordid 
uh, Biden world of various uh, wrongdoings by both Hunter and Joe Biden over the past couple of years. So first, I would want to ask what you think of the political prudence of a formal impeachment inquiry. And second, what you think, how how big a deal you think the latest uh, Biden world uh, wrongdoings actually are? Yeah, I I think to to take those two together, just to start, Jack, um, the big thing is this is much more about political accountability than any chance that Biden will be impeached. There is no chance, zero chance that Biden will be removed from office. Um, the, mm-hmm. co- the Constitution requires for conviction in the Senate a two-thirds supermajority. The Democrats have uh, slim control of the Senate at the moment. The math is not there. Um, I don't think there's any chance, based on anything we know now, and I can't imagine knowing the Democrats as I do, uh, anything we're going to find out that would cause them to remove Biden from office. And I think the Republicans know this. So- um, I'm glad you mentioned our, our, our chat 10 years ago, because one of the points I was trying to make in the book is that a norm that we used to have is that the House would not go down the impeachment road, even though you only need a simple majority of the House to file articles of impeachment. What would stop the House from doing that, aside from the fact that, you know, um, there have, hadn't been historically that many occasions of egregious behavior or behavior so egregious that it would warrant removing the president from office and taking away from the voters the right to remove the president. Um, but the big thing was, if there was no chance of getting a conviction in the Senate, there was no point in going down the, the articles of impeachment road in the House. Um, I think we're losing that. And that's a shame because con- impeachment, therefore, just becomes another political tool like, uh, you know, holding someone in contempt or, or that kind of stuff. And that's not really Madison wanted impeachment in the Constitution because he thought it was an indispensable tool for Congress to police against the possibility that egregious executive misconduct could destroy the country. I mean, that was what that was what the framers were were worried about, the powers of the presidency and how does Congress um, check them. So, you know, that worked for about two centuries, but I think, you know, if you, you know, one day you wake up and it's 2023 and I, I pointed this out the other day, I think the last 10 presidencies, we've had four impeachments, three impeachments, one resignation on the cusp of impeachment and a couple of other impeachment investigations. So, you know, when I when I was a kid, I remember when Nixon got uh, was being subjected to impeachment inquiry in 1973. It was it was an enormous deal because it hadn't happened in a century and no president's ever been removed because of the daunting constitutional requirement of a two thirds Senate supermajority, although Nixon might have if he if there had actually been a impeachment trial. So I think it's a shame what's happened to impeachment, but. Um, it's also just a reality that this is the politics that we're now dealing with. And I think part of what's the, the big thing that's pushing this in the Republican controlled House, as thin as that control is, is that the pro Trump Republicans, seeing that Trump is going to be subjected to all of these criminal prosecutions, like the idea of having a parallel proceeding against Biden under the 
auspices of impeachment, um, which allows, the, you know, but makes it easier to argue that, you know, your guy is as sleazy as our guy, which is uh, yeah. pretty much what they're what they're doing. So they're going forward with this impeachment inquiry stuff for that reason. But the big problem they have is they haven't up until now had the votes even to approve an inquiry, which, by the way, means like the thought that they're ever going to have the votes to file actual articles of impeachment when they can't even get an investigation approved uh, is highly unlikely. But the thing is, there's 18 Republicans who hold seats in districts that were won by Biden in 2020. Uh, and they don't want to vote for an impeachment inquiry. It makes it a very tough vote for them and makes it, ha- it makes it much harder for them to hold their seats. It's not going to be a popular vote in their districts. And Kevin McCarthy knew that. So that's the reason he wouldn't hold an impeachment vote. And he therefore tried to declare on his own that there was an impeachment inquiry, which was somewhat humiliating for him if these guys can actually be humiliated. Because in the Ukraine impeachment in 2019, Nancy Pelosi did the same thing. She just sua sponte declared that there was an impeachment inquiry. And Kevin McCarthy went crazy at the time because he said the impeachment power in the Constitution is reposed in the House, not in the Speaker. And unless the full House votes for an impeachment inquiry, there's no impeachment inquiry. And the Trump Justice Department under Bill Barr use that reasoning to say we don't have to cooperate with the demands of the House because they haven't voted an impeachment inquiry. So now the shoe's on the other foot. Um, And I think the main reason this is heated up again is the oversight committee, which is really sort of blazing the trail of this impeachment inquiry under uh, James Comer, they have issued a subpoena to Hunter Biden. He has to testify, I think, December 12th. So it'll be next uh, next Thursday or Wednesday, someday next week. Um, and I think they anticipate that he's going to refuse to testify. And they would like to be able to hold him in contempt. But they don't relish the prospect of like having to go to a court to try to hold him in contempt for not complying with the subpoena when they haven't authorized the inquiry by a vote of the House. So I think what Johnson wants to do is if he can cobble together the votes, he wants to get the inquiry approved by the full House before they bring Hunter in to appear so that they'll be on more solid footing if they have to hold him in contempt. So I think that's what this current bit of theater is about. But it, it we should we should stress that it is theater because – he ain't getting impeached. I mean, it's not happening. I, I doubt they'll ever have the votes to file articles of impeachment. And there's not a prayer that he'd ever be removed. So all of this is 2024 politics, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, it's it's theater, but with some fascinating bit players, I would have to say. I, mean, I just I keep getting uh, uh, because I have this this almost ironic detachment from the news cycle sometimes. I'm amazed by what Hunter Biden manages to get himself or has managed to get himself <laughs> into and and what Joe Biden by extension uh has been implicated in as well. So do the, those the latest discoveries, do you think that the the outrage over them is apt or overblown or somewhere in between? It's apt. So I think some of it has been overblown. For example, the big thing last week 
was they've shown that there were direct payments from Hunter Biden to Joe Biden, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at the payments, it's at a time when the Bidens are getting about $5 million for, for, from China, right? The three payments they've pointed to so far are for a grand total, each one of them, of $1,380. And it turns out that Hunter had no credit at the time, which is very interesting for somebody who's getting $5 million from China and $5 <laughs> yeah. million from Ukraine. But he, nice deal know, if you can get he, it. Yeah, but but like he wanted to buy a car, and he couldn't buy a car. I think because he was he spent the. I mean, his whatever his cut of this was, he it all went to you know prostitutes and and drugs and all that stuff. And the guy's life was obviously a mess. Although, you know, to read some of the stuff that's come out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware, it, it seems to me that probably. Hunter was drug-addled on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But if you got him on Tuesday and Thursday, he was a high-level, high-performing lawyer yeah. who was doing multi-million-dollar deals with the with the Chinese. We can all relate so, to that, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, what day is today? Is today <laughs> one of my good days? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? So, um, so anyway, Hunter couldn't get a car loan. So Joe signs for the car. And it's obvious that, like, Joe was the one who was the, you know, he he was the guarantor on the car loan. I don't know how much money he must have laid out, but Hunter made car payments. Uh, the, it looks like car payments and there's a car. So makes you think it's a, they're probably car payments. So I think when they went up in a balloon over the three $1,380 payments, that was probably not a good idea tactically on, on Comer's part. And I think it just underscores what I've been saying all along is they're playing on the Democrats' premises if they say that the whole case is about showing direct money going into Joe Biden's pocket, when the way you should pitch this is Joe Biden is the scheme. Joe Biden is the business. Without him, there's no business. If he had not willfully participated in this, he could have shut it down in five minutes uh, because of all of the... Uh, internal regulations against self-dealing in government. Um, in a normal situation, if you showed up at a dinner, like your son asked you to go to dinner and you're a high influence politician and you show up and it turns out he's got a bunch of his business cronies there and it turns out that he's trying to create the impression he has access to you, you maybe you get through the dinner but when you get home, you call him up and you say, if you ever put me in that position again, I'm going to hang you by your ankles outside the, the window. What are you, crazy? <laughs> um, and that's what that's what most people in government would do. Joe Biden allowed this to go on for decades while he was meeting with Hunter's partners and they were getting paid millions and millions of dollars. And the other thing I would point out, I don't know why the Republicans, Republicans are spending a lot of time with these IRS guys, so I don't understand why they haven't gotten the message yet. But under internal revenue law, if you want to pay me for a service or for my influence or for whatever you're paying me, and I say to you, Jack, you know, I don't need it. Pay it to my son. As far as the IRS is concerned, you paid me. You know, the fact that you paid my son or my wife or my brother doesn't mean it's not income as to me because it's me that generated the revenue. So they consider that an income event for me, not for the person that you paid. Um, so 
they don't need to show that money went directly into Joe Biden's pocket. It's for his benefit. If 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 he wants the payments to go to members of his family rather than him, the payments still came in. And the idea that it's okay to get $24 million over a five-year period from corrupt and anti-American regimes who are obviously buying somebody's political access. But that's okay as long as you can't show that a dime went into my bank account. That's crazy. I mean, they're able to show that millions of dollars went into these bank accounts. And I, I, I just don't understand how the re, you know why the Republicans are playing it that way. Oh, yeah, it's it is crazy. I mean, it, the whole thing is crazy. And the the abiding trend of the past couple of years, maybe even the past decade of this weird uh, chimerical merger of politics and law, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. We're, we're using politics to do things law should do and vice versa. I don't like it. It's it's a it's a, yep. it's turning into a mess, a monstrosity. But I'm glad that. I have we and I have you as a resource to navigate through this this uh, labyrinthine situation because I can't think of anyone better equipped to do so than you. So it well, seems like that's a, nice of you to say, but that's nice of you to say. But I couldn't I couldn't agree more that we're in a really screwed up place where we've screwed up. We've somehow had the law screw up our politics, and our politics really screw up the law. And it's a it's a really I, I, I wish I had a, like a silver lining to leave us with that I felt like it was getting better, but I really don't. I mean, when you get one guy who's – you have Democrats who are in office who campaign for office saying, if you elect me, I'll go after Trump. Yeah. And instead of being disqualifying, that gets them elected. And now you have <laughs> yep. Trump running for office, and he says, I am your retribution if you put me in. We're going to go after everybody. And he's like, it's 61 in the polls, right? Yeah. Right. At least on the Republican side. So it's a crazy time. Not good. Crazy. But uh, I think you're the silver lining. Let's leave it at that. So uh, <laughs> th thank Boy, you. What a That's a catastrophe. <laughs> I'm the silver lining. <laughs> well, it's something. Well, uh, but anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you to the incomparable Sarah Schutte for producing this podcast. And thank you, Andy McCarthy, for another report. Thanks so much for being here, Jack. I appreciate it.